Hey, everybody, welcome back. I'm Emily Moyer. This is Strange Mosaic. And a few weeks back, I had the pleasure of being on a podcast that I had never heard of before, before I was asked to be on it. And I found the hosts, the co-hosts to be uh, delightful and decided I would like to get to know them a little bit better. But I figured it would be better to do it individually because some of us are chatterboxes and others are not. <laughs> and, I no figured, <laughs> and I figured the only way to get to know each of them was to do it individually. So I'm uh, very excited to have Chris Snipes host. And I guess my guess would be producer. Are you the audio, the guy who does all the editing and producing for the show? Of the here with me, Chris Snipes. Well, welcome. I'm really excited to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, Likewise. Thank you for having me. That's an honor. So, you know, we were just chatted for a few minutes before we got started here. And um, Laura was telling you how much she's been enjoying listening to your podcast and your style. And and I really wanted to say something about it as well. Uh, I did when I was on your show. I haven't had a chance to listen to the finished product yet. So I don't know what parts were in there or what weren't. But um, when I knew I was going to be on your show, I went and familiarized myself a little bit and listened for the first time in a couple of years from start to finish to a, you know, sort of alternative information conspiracy type sure. of podcast, the way that I used to years and years ago when I couldn't get enough. I had really moved away from that, but I so enjoyed everything about the experience from your unique interview style with your wife. She's your wife, right? Hunter is yes, your sir. wife. He's not your girlfriend. She's your wife. Okay. Um, that, you know, you really let the, the guest speak, something which I'm guilty of sometimes not doing. <laughs> um, but you do ask questions and the questions you ask are always really good ones, which sometimes lead to said long-windedness of your guests. Sure. Um, but also the quality of the production is good. I've been having chats with someone in the background who's like, Emily, we listen to you complain about the sound at the parties you go to all the time, but your podcast sounds like shit. Let's do something about that. <laughs> And I found myself really appreciating the studio sound quality of your podcast and the obvious time that you take in between when you record and when you put it out to yes. make it a sound product as opposed to just an information download. Mm -hmm. um, and so I want to commend you because I, I just, I don't listen to that much stuff anymore. I listen to mostly tennis videos at this point, <laughs> right? And it's not because I'm not interested anymore like I, I, that's not true part of it is just I'm talking to the same people all the time that are being interviewed and other things but I think I heard like enough of the format of podcasts that I've been listening to for so many years that I just you know everything runs its course but you made something that I used to love new to me again in a way that I was I was so happy listening to it I was content to listen from start to finish I was sad when it was over like I remember, you know, so congratulations on that. I really, how did you come to do what you're doing? When I told you I wanted to have you on my show, you're like, I don't really know about this, man. <laughs> I don't think that I'm that excited. That's why I have other people come on my show and I talk to them and I put them in the spotlight. But um, let's see. First of all, thank you for the compliment. That means a lot. Uh, sound. I think the reason that I had my production values where I get all that from, I think, I used to do a lot of volunteer community radio stuff. 
having tons of radio shows throughout the years, uh, playing all different kinds of music, um, all different hours of the night. Um, but then I went into documentary work. Uh, I started off by doing a documentary of a late friend of mine, close, close friend, best friend, who had a really hard, long life, dealt a really bad, uh, negative uh, deck of cards or hand of cards when he was born health-wise. And so I said, I've, I've got to, I don't know anything about making documentaries, but I've always been obsessed by documenting things. I always like, I was the kid who had the the tape recorder, cassette tape recorder, and I would record TV shows. I would set it in front of the fucking TV. And, and it was something about capturing that and filing that away and just knowing that I had, I'd never listened to it, never went back and listened to any of it. But um, so I was kind of, I was fascinated by being able to capture little slices of life and little tidbits here and there. So I thought, okay, let's, let's use this as my first product uh, or my first project as far as documenting in a serious manner is concerned. Um, and so I started collecting interviews uh, with people that knew my late friend and went to his funeral and taped a bunch of footage there. And I soon found out by trial and error that sound, the audio is so fucking important. Like if you can't understand what somebody is saying or it's canceled out by background noise or something like that, then you kind of lose the, you lose the thread. Uh, so it's almost import more important than visuals being able to hear something clearly, you know? So I think that's where I, I picked that up from, um, that film school that I put myself through, that I, it ended up being a two-hour feature-length documentary. I never released it anywhere. It's on YouTube. You can watch it for free. But I think that's where I learned the value of that. So I wanted to make something that sounded like a it could be a radio show, something that you could tune in and listen to and go, wow, that was really cool. It was There was a thread from beginning to end, and it felt like somebody cared about it, like somebody took the pains to make it sound good and deliver it to you in a way that, you know, is comprehensible in some way. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that for a lot of us, when we have come into listening to information that we now understand as alternative or conspiracy or whatever, like we're so hungry, we got a taste of something we didn't know and we're so hungry for more or deeper or farther that certainly in the beginning, the like what the whole thing sounds like is not necessarily something that we're paying a lot of attention to, sure. right? And then you get sort of hooked into, um, you know, almost like getting a, a dope hit from some of the information and, and, and you get used to taking it in that way and whatnot for myself with music um over it took years of me going to parties and hearing different styles of electronic music on different kinds of sound systems in different kinds of rooms with different kinds of crowds to really become clear on the aesthetic that i liked mm -hmm. right and i guess in my head some way i have always thought of the two things as distinctly separate like mm -hmm. i love this information i love the perfect perfect sound i love the sound of a perfect room for techno and a perfect yeah. sound system uh -huh. um, but i do think particularly for some people with where information is going which is a lot less like 
news and like whatever's happening that day oriented, at least kind of stuff that I'm interested in and much more about like building our own stories and narratives that maybe it's time for myself and others to start taking a second look at the importance of aesthetic, not just in terms of what our logos look like or maybe our, our background, but sound quality and different things that you can do with that. I, I had a young man reach out to me who's starting to advise me and help me because he'd had to figure out sound for, he plays an unusual instrument and it's hard to capture it uh, on recording with you know, be the, accurately. Mm-hmm. And so he's telling me some interesting things about like what it sounds like listening to me for someone who's into sound. And I was like, uh-huh. holy shit, like I I'm the person I complain about. So that <laughs> what I remember driving home from, like I was a gymnast and I used to do gymnastics until nine o'clock at night from the time I was like six years old. Mm-hmm. And I remember driving home from the gym to my house, um, which was about, at the time when you're a kid, it seems like an hour, but I think it was probably between 20 and 30 minutes. Right. But it was generally enough time to listen to some of those like old radio shows that were like, you remember, I don't remember what they were called, but they were like mystery. They were like murder mystery radio shows. Only the shadow knows. Right. And so it was like, it would be on whatever station my dad listened to for news after nine o'clock at night, like at back in the seventies and eighties yes. was done. We weren't having 24 hour news. So uh-huh. we listened to some of those mystery radio shows or whatnot. And I did like that dark tone. I didn't have to see the video. It had a very X-Files or Twilight Zone kind of feel to it. Uh-huh. And, you know, I think as we, as I, as I got older and watched more TV shows, I forgot about that just as a, as a way of like inspiring your own inner visuals or aesthetic. And when I first started listening to information, it mostly was podcasts, right? There wasn't so many, so much YouTube then. Mm-hmm. And and I, 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 you know, maybe I, maybe I lost something for the listening to things when everything kind of moved to YouTube. And I've been thinking about these things a lot lately so that you had a background like in radio and radio shows and what you said about recording the TV with your cassette tape, right? <laughs> like, have you ever gone, do you still have those tapes? I do have a lot of them, actually. I think I have the whole Kiss TV movie. Uh, it's took like three or four cassettes, but yeah, I got it somewhere. Um, are you familiar with like found sound and all of that kind yeah. of stuff? Yes, I love right. that. You probably have some stuff, some really cool things in there that would be interesting for people who make like artsy kind of video and found sound stuff, or even for DJs to like use as samples and and whatnot. My sister was a fan of recording television shows. Now she did it, she did it with the VHS tape, but it was like weird. Like, you know, she would record all of the, she recorded every show she watched every week. Yeah. Right. So like another version of that. I would record gymnastics when it was on because it was on so rarely. And I would just rewatch it over and over and over. But my mm-hmm. sister recorded everything. And we also used to make like mixtapes with, you oh, know, yeah. audio cassette with the songs we like, but we would always try and get them to like, overlap a little bit sound is kind of like the dj (laughs) like continuous music yeah yeah i totally relate to that i remember my sister had one that she made like we we did this all the time and generally the mixes weren't very good but she had one where just a few of them just by law were so good that like we were no longer listening to the mixtape 
to hear the songs. Like it was just like we, we were impressed with how well she blended. It wasn't really a mix; Absolutely. it was more like a blend. Yes, right? I totally. I'm right there with you. But there's something so satisfying about oh. like when you hear the part you like go into the other part you like from two different yeah. songs, right? Yeah, for sure. And I used to take. Uh, uh, like a boombox and record like our nights out. Like when we go cruising around the shitty little town that I grew up in, I would take the boombox and I would, rec- I mean, we would be listening to music on the car stereo, but I would be just recording us hanging out. Like, and one time because of this, I recorded a car accident that we were, <laughs> we had taken, taken one of my friend's dad's cars. They were at a baseball game or something like that. And we were taking turns driving it on a gravel road by our house. And we were trying to, we're taking turns gunning it up to 80. So it was my turn. And uh, right as I hit 80, I hit a patch of loose gravel and I stupidly slammed on the brakes and just, we just went off the fucking road into this huge mud puddle. And uh, the whole thing's on tape. I still have it somewhere. It's hilarious. It's embarrassing and hilarious, but that that's gold. Some of the gold I mined. Yeah, I bet. When I lived in New York, I, I lived in New York for a year and I would always hear like fights on the street for, you know, you'd hear that kind of stuff, yeah. but I would always hear like in the middle of the night, I'd wake up, there'd be cars with their brakes screeching. I never heard the boom. Yeah, right? I know. I got to the point that I'm like, this is a fucking psyop, dude. Like <laughs> how could it be that so many people have near misses and not one, the whole year I lived there. I'd never lived like that close to like that much street action before at that time. Right. How could it be all of those near misses and not one boom? Right. Right. I'm like, are they playing like audio of that outside just to keep people on edge or something like that? How could it never be one? So it must have been really satisfying to capture the sound of like a thing actually happening. Absolutely. (laughs) And me cussing at a very high pitched tone of voice because I was so exasperated. It was it's hilarious. If I find it, I'll digitize it and I'll send you a copy. So do you also do the art on the thumbnails for your show? Or yes. is that Hunter? Yeah, is that, or is that Hunter? yeah. Not the, uh, I don't do the, I didn't do the logo, but uh, the, the episode art I do. Yes, I do that too. Yeah, it is. Um, some people are really good at it, right? My former co-host Randy has always been very good at, mm-hmm. at doing that. And it was something that like, I kind of, resisted when I first started doing shows I wasn't doing that at all or when I was doing them by myself you know shows by myself and then I started futzing around with it but I hadn't found like an aesthetic yet or or you know sort of a format I liked and then at a certain point a couple years ago someone came in and made a few templates for me including one but especially the ones for the project kids and the the glass bead game uh, that I do and I got to really it became very important to me to like capture the right essence and like I feel like most of them are pretty good but there's a few where it feels so satisfying because you got I got it just right for like the 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 tone of the show so um I really the I felt like the one that you did for the show I did with you guys by the way in case I can't remember if I even said the name I just started talking their show is called the melt Um, but uh I it really it felt like it with the colors you chose and and the way it it just what you shows captured the the tone of the show and that's an art in and of itself so it sounds great it looks great you guys aren't doing video yet but i'm assuming that the reason you're not yet doing video is because you haven't yet figured out 
how you want to make your visual aesthetic. Yes. Guilty is fucking charged. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I don't want to do it right. You know, like the guy that made the logo, uh, the purple logo with the 3D letters, he made some animations too, to go along with that. They're really, really sweet. Um, but yeah, I want to do it right. I want to do it right. I'm a visual dude too. So I, I want to make sure that, you know, I'm good on my game. <laughs> I'm a perfectionist, you know, sometimes to a fault. So, and I envy somebody like you, you're so prolific as far as putting out podcasts, but you, the way that you do them, you don't do all the rigmarole that I do. So you can just bang it out and release it in a day or two after you do it. And I you know that there must be some kind of a, a high with doing it that immediately too, because you can just keep hammering them out. And you're, like you said, you, you kind of get a, intoxicated by all the information that you're processing and taking in and exchanging with people. And that allows you to do a lot more of that. Whereas I only have so much time for a given week to do that. So the way that I do it, it's a slow process. That's why I only put out an episode a week, but I'd love to do more. We were just talking, me and Hunter were just talking about that. Yeah. So I, you know, I actually, most of the shows that I put out now sit in the can for like a, a bit before they go out. I have a few mm -hmm. shows that get, that are completely raw that have like zero production value to them at all that go out pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, no, I, like I just, um, I record, I tend to record in like, mm, I'll record three or four shows in one week. And then the next week I might only record one or none sometimes. And so I'm holding on to shows, but the other thing is like, I, this is like the weirdest, it's an instinctive and intuitive thing. I tend to get two things a little bit before everybody else in terms of like my awareness of them or they're bothering me or they're exciting me. Mm -hmm. And instinctively, like I, when I decide it's time to put the show out, I'll put it out and someone that day will say, oh my God, that is so weird. That thing just happened to me today. And it almost feels like, had I said it two weeks before, sure, like I could have been maybe the first person to something out there, but yes. it wouldn't have been relevant in a way that is as meaningful to people as it is when it rides in, right? When it's kind of for them. Yeah. Uh, and then by the time the show comes out, sometimes I'm almost forgetting what I had talked about, but I recognize that at a certain point that like I record it and then I know the moment to put it out. And then that's when I do, like, I'm not really on a release schedule. I think you guys do more like of a release schedule. Sure. There's a million ways to do it. And I think um, the next stage for me, um, I think is to, to maybe curate my mind a little bit more and maybe not have to say everything and you know um even though like there's a it's like a zoo it's like going all the time it's like a 24-hour nightclub or something in there um but i i think that like you know or maybe some of the projects they do to have an aesthetic and you have one that you've built this aesthetic tick for right and then once that's kind of in place then you can go ahead and start doing more shows or different sort of you know a different um like idea, but you have your kind of aesthetic that binds one thing to the other and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and so it, I think it's just as valid of a way to do it. And a few of the things I've listened to you, your guys, it's very interesting. And I don't know quite if it's just the way you two are approaching it or the way people present themselves when they are sitting with you, or mm -hmm. if it's the aesthetic that's doing this, but people, you've had some people on your show that I generally would dismiss. And somehow the thing they're saying when they're saying it on your show with you feels 
um, something more to consider than I would have thought it before. So I don't know what that is, if that's the aesthetic that is, 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 is making it come off differently, or if it's being sitting with, you, with the two of you, or some of the people are people who it was like a year, couple of years ago, I decided to dismiss them and Absolutely. they evolved in the way it all came together. Um, but it's it, that that's an interesting that that is another interesting thing about your show that I have recognized with the little bits that I've listened to. Well, that's uh, great. So well done with that. Thank right. you. That's fantastic. Well um, yeah, that's, go, ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say that's that's the perfect place to I mean, I love being able to do that. Like part of the research that I do for interviews is listening to people's other interviews. Um, so you can get a feel for the person who has kind of their shtick and they, it's the same shtick, no matter who's answering the questions. Like you ask a question and they go off for 30 minutes straight and it's the exact same thing they said on three other shows. But then sometimes you can catch like a side door that they pass up because they're moving too quickly or that person is just going through their shtick so quickly that you can make a little flag and go, let's, I want to make sure and, and, you know, pin them down on that and go deeper into that aspect because they never, ever go into that aspect. So I love being able to do that. It's like a labyrinth, like a metaphorical labyrinth. I like finding the unlit passageways and, and going that way because that's where the that's where the gold is. You know, everybody's heard the other shit before. So I like finding, yeah, the unexplored territory if it's at all possible. Some people are too into their shtick, like Bart Sabrell, totally like that. He could just release his shtick as a documentary or as a radio show. And then you could just play that no matter what podcast he's on, but he doesn't really vary from that at all. Um, great, great material, captivating stuff, but he kind of just goes, he stays within a certain boundary. And I like people that are willing to play and flex and stuff like that and, and kind of maybe urging them or nudging them to do that. Yeah. I found myself talking about something I almost never talk about when I was on your show, it was kind of interesting. It was like precognitive. Like the next week I had um, a psychic reading from a very well-known psychic in alternative information realms. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if you know who she is. Her name is Sloan Bella. I don't. Um, she, I had never heard of her until I was covering the Elisa Lamb thing, uh, story pretty heavily last year, about a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. I did about six or seven different shows with different people about like some very strange aspects of that case that I only am familiar with because I lived a block from where it happened. And so there was things that I would know about some of the oddities that almost anybody else wouldn't know because they weren't living there at that time. I lived there just about that time. Um, and people started sending me her stuff and saying, you guys should do a show together. It's like, you know, you get what you're saying is very complimentary to each other. And, and you know, hers is all from psychic stuff. And mine was from my own experiences living there. And so I started paying attention to her a little bit. Um, and we have some other connections too, because her son actually died in Chatsworth about a, not very far from where I grew up, right? And he had died in this strange circumstance, but I had a reading from her. And um, some of the main parts of the reading were about my brother, who I don't have never really talked about in an interview or a show before. And I had just done that the week before with you. So it was almost like um, I was like, you know, there were some things I hadn't really considered about my brother before that show with you. And that was exactly where she went. So that was kind of a cool and it's just not not a place I've really gone into that deep before. And so, yes, you guys do um, elicit that. Let me ask you, um, 
how did you like what's your origin story as far as like this information? <laughs> we know your origin story as far as like sound and production quality and and whatnot, but um what is your sort of entry point? Can you sort of take us there with you? Yeah, I had a few sort of scattered experiences in my in my childhood. And I don't know if they have anything directly to do with where I'm at today or not, but um perhaps somebody else can be the judge of that. But the first one that I remember, well, actually, no, that's the, it's a little further down the line. We used to live um, in a trailer in the woods, like during the first four years of my life. And there was a period of time where my dad and my mom were sort of temporarily separated. And my dad went to California to work and my mom and I stayed in the trailer and I stayed with lots of babysitters and stuff like that. But one night a tornado came, which is not a good, a trailer is not a good place to be in a tornado. And I remember looking out of the window and the trees were just almost bent over to the ground. It was, the wind was blowing so hard. And then I remember this dude on a motorcycle. We lived, like I said, off in the woods. So we had a long gravel driveway and this dude in a motorcycle, which my mom didn't seem to know or be that concerned about which was confusing to me was riding out to the to where our trailer was going back to the road back and forth back and forth and which i didn't it already added to the tension of the tornado and then my mom was holding me in the living room like because she was freaked out she grew up uh, with a mom that was freaking out about bad weather and tornadoes all the time and so she was holding me and and i think maybe even reciting the, the lord's prayer or something and I noticed a mist forming in the living room and I pointed it out to my mom and I said, is that, is that the tornado? Is it coming inside? And she said, she acted like she didn't know what I was talking about. And then she scooped me up and we went back to the bedroom and she lit a couple of candles and continued to pray. That's one instance. The other instance I would go, this was probably when that was probably when I was four or five, when I was, probably eight or nine, maybe more like around seven. I would go during the summer to my step-grandpa, my grandma's house, because they had a, a carnival or a state fair that was near them. I would go there and stay a week and I would get to stay up late and eat ice cream all the time and watch Johnny Carson and stuff like that. And I, one night we were in front of the TV, her, my step-grandfather, I was on her lap and the TV was in front to the left was an entryway that went into another bedroom from through that doorway. You could see another entryway to what was another guest room. And I look up because I heard a noise and I saw a first one figure and then two figures come into the room with flashlights, shining them around, shining at me. And I'm calling this to my grandma's attention. And I said, Hey, grandma, who, who, who are these people? And she didn't seem to, it didn't register with her. Like she didn't seem to know what I was talking about. So they continued looking around this room and then I don't remember anything after that. So whatever the fuck that's worth. Later on. Oh, actually during this time, I started being fascinated. We used to get these little books from probably scholastic books, which, you know, would come to your school with a catalog every two months and you could order stuff. And they would have these strange but true compilations of different stories of, you know, real things that supposedly happened. And I was totally fascinated by it. Like one of them was somewhere in England in the 
I don't know, mid 1900s or something, uh, it had snowed really heavily and hoof prints were discovered over like a hundred mile, uh, hundred mile trail. But the thing about the hoof prints is that they would go up walls and across rooftops and then down walls. And it was like stuff like that. And I was completely captivated by that. So I just absorbed all of that that I could. And then I discovered our, our local library had a metaphysical occult section poured through that, just ate it up. I loved it. Um, I'm not sure what attracted me, except that it kind of, I think, hinted that there was a lot more to reality than, you know, anybody around me was alluding to. So I was, it was like a peek into a different realm. So I would absorb all of that. And then probably when I was 10, 10 or 11, bouncing on my trampoline in the backyard with my friend at night, see this craft um, moving in the sky. It seemed very quickly, but it was hard to tell because it was very far away. And then it stopped, full stop. And then it moved from one point to another point in the sky super quickly and then full stop. And then it came so low that you could see uh, the belly of it, um, the streetlights lighting the belly of it. And then it just zoomed away into the distance, like to, to where you couldn't see it. So I was astounded by that. Um, my friend saw it too. I tried to contact him years later to see if he remembered that, but he, I never got a hold of him. So yeah, there's all of that. Um, and then when I was in junior high, I would volunteer to work at the library uh, for a period every day, every school day. And of course, I went to the metaphysical section and just devoured that. And I think I was simultaneously fascinated by it, but I was really scared scared by it too. I think uh, some of the stories, especially of things like uh, demonic possession, like totally freaked me out. I think, and it set up like this uh, recurring dynamic throughout my life. It's pretty common, pretty common fear, but of something coming in that you were unaware even existed before that coming in and fucking your shit up, like just coming in out of nowhere and totally literally in this case, possessing your body and causing you to do all these crazy things uh, against your will. And then throughout my life, that was sort of a recurring theme, uh, fearing that things like that would happen. Um, but so that uh, really made an impression on me. And then I remember uh, probably when I was 11 or 12, somehow they edited The Exorcist down to be aired on TV, <laughs> on just regular TV. And I said, well, I asked my parents if I could go to my friend's house and watch it, which lived within walking distance up the street. And I had, granted, I had, I was well-versed in tales of possession, demonic possession and exorcisms and stuff like that. So I had already created all this sort of catalog of images in my mind about, you know, what that would be like and how would that manifest? And my God, seeing somebody do that, how disturbing how fucking crazy and so yeah sat down to watch the exorcist and it freaked it freaked me out like intensely freaked me out and uh i really did not i was almost going to call my parents and have them pick me up at the house i didn't want to walk the two blocks back to my house because it was dark and it was misty and yeah it totally messed my shit up and then i think that night i woke up 
in the middle of the night, of course, with my lights on. And I was, my whole body was trembling uncontrollably, which of course, like, that's the exact thing that I did not want to happen. Like, it was, it was almost like it was happening to me. Like it was taking me over and I didn't have any, I couldn't control it. So I went and slept with my parents that night. And for probably seven to eight months after that, every night I slept with the lights on and I was freaked out on a constant state of high alert. Um, so there's that. And then probably, I don't know, you know, I got distracted by adolescence and being a young adult and girls and stuff like that. So I kind of just momentarily stopped focusing on that stuff because I had lots of other distractions to focus on. And then in the 90s, I think, is when I started visiting new age bookstores in St. Louis, which is close to where I lived in St. Charles, Missouri. They had a uh, an occult bookstore. It wasn't just like crystals and stuff like that, healing meditations. This was like, they would have Aleister Crowley books and, you know, some darker stuff. Uh, and I was totally fascinated by that. So I would just go in and just read stuff there. And it just fed this fascination in me. Um, and then I would go into these new age bookstores where they would have, um, you know, I started seeing books on conspiracies, uh, books on, you know, the UFO agenda and the Montauk project and all of this stuff. And uh, totally, totally fascinated by it. But I had nobody around me that was remotely interested in any of these subjects. So I was just like in my head, you know, in my, this imaginary world with all of this crazy information that I had no way to verify any of it, or nobody to talk to about it. This was long before the internet. Um, so again, I think I put that to sleep for a few years and then I was in a very long and unhappy marriage that was not conducive, particularly not conducive for anything that wasn't confirmed by science or could be measured in a lab or anything like that. I mean, she was just totally fucking a materialist for sure. Uh, and so I kind of put that part of me to bed. I kind of just put it into like, it does not have any, doesn't have a place in my reality right now. So I'm just going to focus on these young kids that I have that we had together and raising them. And so I took my mind off of it. And then as I was getting out of that marriage, Shortly before I met Hunter, actually, kind of simultaneously, maybe it was like two or three months before I met her, I started, I had this, I was listening to Duncan Trussell's podcast. And I was really impressed by that. Like this stand up comedian was having chaos magicians on his podcast and Satanists and occultists. And so I was like, I didn't know anybody was still interested in this stuff anymore. And it was very like, holy shit, like it woke all this stuff up again, stirred it all up. And then I was like, how, you know, I could easily have a podcast who, what, how would that, how would that look? At first I was going to have people on telling their stories, their firsthand experiences with ghosts and UFOs and just anything outside of the realm of consensus reality. But then I thought, you know, there's, people writing books and doing research that I would really love to talk to. Like this could be just an excuse to just have conversations with these people. So I think I got a hold of Kai Muga, um, a physical medium. He was my first episode, Mike Clellan, Lon Strickland, and just started amassing them. And I got probably five or six episodes together. And then I started putting them out. Um, and that's the long story of how I got to where I'm at now. So there's a bunch of stuff. So I'm going to note with, I want to 
talk about a couple of your experiences starting with in the trailer and then your uh experience at your grandparents house uh your ufo experience and then i want to get to your uh sort of how you talked about you know the end of your marriage and into you know the podcast and whatnot so remind me if i forget one to come back to um so a couple of things where are where 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 were you living when you were in the trailer columbia outside of columbia missouri Columbia, Missouri. Oh, that's interesting. And yeah. and have you lived in that Midwest your whole life? I know you told me you live in Kansas now. Are you from born and raised in the Midwest or have you been other Pretty places? Much. Pretty much. There's been little tiny stints that I've lived other places, Arizona for a little bit for a long summer in Europe, but mostly the Midwest. Yeah. Where did you live when you lived in Arizona? Tempe. Okay. Um, that's interesting. Um, so, uh, in the trailer, I, this is going to sound like really weird, but didn't your dad's dad? So Laura's father, his father died, right? No, his mother. mother. His mother died when he was a child. How did it, how did it go? The hur- It was a hurricane or it was a tornado? Yeah. It was a tornado. His dad took him and took him, like, ran him away from the trailer. Right. And put, had him get underneath the truck. Okay, so stay here. So and he went back, and as he was running back to get his wife, my dad's mom, that a tornado came in and okay, grabbed it, grabbed it, and threw the trailer. And okay, so people who, who couldn't hear it well, the her they were living in a trailer. Her father and his parents, and the the, the her father's father, so her grandfather, mm-hmm. um, took her dad out and told him to hide under the truck. And then he went back to the trailer to get his wife. But in the time between when he left his son at the truck and got back to the trailer, the tornado took the trailer and killed his mother. Holy shit. Right. So as soon as you started talking about the, that, it was a tornado, tornado. Mm-hmm. Okay. In South Dakota. So also in the Midwest, um, wow. I grew up in Los Angeles. We had earthquakes, but not tornadoes. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you were talking about as far as there being a mist and a gentleman driving back and forth and back and forth that your mom didn't seem um, aware of. Like there's serious anomalies related to both like time and space and energy that happen at the eye of tornadoes and at the eye of hurricanes. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard um, about, have you ever heard Dr. Judy Wood talk about Hurricane Aaron on the day of 9-11? And that, I mean, that's part of her narrative on what happened with the use of directed energy weapons, that they somehow harnessed the energy from this hurricane that was happening off of the coast of New York that was moving, 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 and then suddenly stalled out at a certain point, mm-hmm. right? But that that was related to what she says was the use of directed energy weapons. And and I, I think she, I think she's right about a lot of stuff that mm-hmm. with that, but the, when you when she was giving some of her early presentations and she was showing some of the anomalous things that happen with physics and whatnot, when there are hurricanes, like certain things being completely sliced in half and like the stuff on one side looks one way and the stuff on the other side looks another way. This is like literally splitting realities. And then with tornadoes, the way it's like spinning around a point, I mean, that's really kind of like black hole, toroidal energy field kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and 
it, depending on where you were in relationship to the tornado, like I almost wonder if somehow time, there was a time distortion in that somebody who drove up and down once, it just kept looping for you, right? And that you were, I have noticed for my own self and I've had lots of weird experiences in my life, right? And some of them mixed with drug use and some of them not, that when you see the fine mist, whether that fine mist be white or that fine mist be black, that that is often a frequent uh, accompaniment or component of a deep or a metaphysical or a temporal event um, mm -hmm. that, you know, I've had enough of those happen um, that I just wonder if you and your mother were just experiencing time totally differently, hers out of panic and yours out of curiosity. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Right. And that that sort of mist is kind of you like some people, some people respond to um, stressful events, like by slowing things down. Right. Mm -hmm. And others, everything speeds up and they don't even know what's happening. Yeah. Um, so that is really interesting. And also that you said that it was in the woods. Mm -hmm. Have And I don't know why, but as soon as you said that, have you seen this video of like a tree getting up and literally moving itself over? Have you no. seen these videos of moving no. trees? I have not. No. So Laura and I were thinking about this because we like to listen to Kalindi. Do you know who Kalindi is? It sounds familiar. Maybe you've heard me talk about him. So he's this gentleman who oh. died early on in the COVID narrative the, big, <laughs> um, the, the intense amount of mushrooms 50 grams or yeah 30 to 50 grams of mushrooms at a time and he would talk about some interesting things with the trees and getting watching them get up and move and you know we when we're doing mushrooms lately we will we'll look at the trees and they do look quite different when you're on mushrooms and they, they're <laughs> fantastic either way uh -huh. um, but there seems to be some level of coordinated movement that we cannot catch in our normal state that even in like, just when you're first starting, the mushrooms are first starting to come on. So it doesn't require you to be like super hallucinating to notice it just a no, little yeah. bit. There uh -huh. seems to be coordination on the level of like school of fish or school of bird or people doing choreographed routines. That is sort of surprising to observe, but we had been thinking about this Kalindi thing. And then I see, find this video of moving trees and what's weird is like i find it and then like that day or two later that becomes like a trending thing somewhere and there's some videos and some of them look better than others of trees literally getting up and moving themselves and repositioning that's insane. right and you said you grew up in columbia missouri you're familiar you've heard of have you heard of columbia maryland i have not so columbia maryland was the first planned community in the united states it's where Michael Wan grew up. I don't uh, know. Have you had your show with Michael yet? Uh, that is coming up Thursday. Yeah. Ask him about Columbia, Maryland, because it's it's interesting where he grew up. Yeah. Um, but I have we have found through doing all the episodes, we do like what we call map porn, that there's a lot of connectivity between places with the same name. And I don't like I think that there is. Like if there is some network of portals or connections or, or things like that, I think things with like names have some level of connectivity that is that is just beyond the likeness of names, right? Sure, um, sure. So I started thinking about that that there, but forests and woods are really interesting places. Like I see trees as 
um, the original or a more organic like 5G tower. And then the forest or the woods or the green belt, the green area as being like nature's green screen that lots of different things can be projected off of. Mm -hmm. So whenever you're in a um, forested or a wooded area or a green, high green area, um, you can do a lot of the same things that you can do when you're in like an Internet of Things type environment. It's just a different set of magic. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you were in the trailer. So you were kind of in your metal box, right, in this sort of space surrounded by 5G towers and green screen reality, mm-hmm. having your sort of early temporal event. Um, it is interesting. Some people who are like very agitated by weather events. Right. I'm not one of them. Um, yeah. Like my sister used to lose her shit when there would be an earthquake, like just absolutely like freak out. You know, when there was the big earthquake in Northridge in 1994, I, I happened to not be home. I was away at college, my freshman year of college. And my sister just lost it. Like she made, like she wanted to move away from the house. My mom and her like went like an hour and a half away, stayed in a hotel. Like she was terrified to be around anywhere where that had happened. There was a lot of damage to the house, but it was a level of anxiety and panic that I only would get to through like my fear of like the night stalker when I was a kid. Right. So like for me, the kind of fear that you were talking about for the act from the exorcist was like the level of fear I was in when the night stalker was out. I was 10. I was sleeping in my dad's bed every night. I wanted all the lights on, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So it's weird how, and that didn't seem to move my sister too much, right? Like, I don't think she liked the idea of the night stalker, but it wasn't stopping her from sleeping at night. Right. So it's interesting who responds to what you were more concerned. There was a gentleman outside driving back and forth, casing the joint or something maybe, or whatever it is. And she's worried about the weather event and you're having two completely different experiences of reality. Like the kind of threat that is posed by somebody doing something specifically to you is very different than the kind of trauma that that comes from an, a large overall weather system or event like one feels very personal and one is not and it speaks to the psychology of the person who's sort of either afraid or not afraid of of either kind sure. right and there's things like people who are afraid to go into buildings because there might be a bomb or it's 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 it's, it's weird how some people yeah. are afraid of one kind but not the other kind exactly you know right so yeah. um you guys were having both like, you know, you seem to be having more of a curious, like a, a, a sort of curious moment and her a terrified moment. But mm-hmm. each of you focused on the thing that you perceived threat from to the exclusion of everything else that was going on. And whenever yeah. you have a high energy event, there's a lot of things going on. And this is why you get completely different reports from people who supposedly were in the same place at the same time. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So that was interesting. Um, but that mist that you described. Um, I think is indicative um, all the weirdest things in my life that have happened, the weirdest, like maybe not the scariest or the craziest or whatever, but just like the, wow, that was fucking weird. Uh, have involved that kind of changing of the atmosphere. Um, and I wonder what that really is. Like, that's one of those Ooh. things that, that really like, what is the nature of this reality that the, like the environment um conspires with whatever it is 
my brain and the larger reality are doing to create wow. like this, you know, <laughs> this moment captured in time. What's the, uh, what's that? There's this quote that I keep getting fixated on at different moments that I met a gentleman on the trail one day that it was tattooed on his chest and it said he liked the fragility of moments spent suspended in time or something. It's a gentleman named Chris Marker. Have you heard of this person? I have not. Uh, he, I started to look into him. He's quite interesting too. And the way he captures realities with his work. I mean, he's a, he's a now deceased sort of visual artist and sort of scene maker kind of person. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's when I was, I, I can sort of see that moment captured in the trailer, just like suspended outside of time. Exactly. Um, the other one where you talked about going to your grandparents' house mm -hmm. and that there were people examining the house with flashlights outside of the awareness of everyone else in the house, but yeah. you exactly. <laughs> again, this is a case of like you feeling like there's a some sort of like threat or curiosity coming at you from others, like, right? It's not a weather thing or a whatever. Um, do you, so one of the things that, that I, and I've known a lot of other people who've experienced this as well is uh, maybe when that went on drugs or in like a sleep paralysis kind of state, mm -hmm. um, shadow people, right? Shadow people um, or people that are you know, peripheral people that you just yes. kind of see out of the, the corner of the eyes. Was this like that? Or did you see like real pe like people that looked like you could see their facial features and their clothes? Or was it more like silhouetted, but holding flashlights? More like silhouetted, but holding flashlights. Yeah. I so want to say, I mean, there's parts of me, parts of my memory that want to fill in the blanks, but right. very wary of that. You know, I want to say like hazmat suits and like goggles or something like that, but I truthfully don't know if that, I, I should get a, some kind of a hypnotic regression or something I mean, that might be worth burying into. I do Before have this one memory from when I was a kid of hiding under the bed and having this awareness that there were people outside of the house i can't remember if i thought they were in helicopters or not or maybe somewhere in helicopters or somewhere not in helicopters that were had some kind of flashlights where they could look through the walls of the house and find me so wow. i was trying to hide under the bed thinking that that extra layer like i was trying to find somewhere in the house to hide that would be out of the purview of these um, sort of material penetrating type of flashlights or lasers or whatever it was, right? Yeah. Um, and I often wonder, like now we're very well aware that they have technologies that can do that, that can look right through, like, you know, they can see which room in the house you're in just through wall penetrating type of things. But I don't, I don't think we were at that point in the seventies on the level that I mean, I'm sure they had that kind of stuff. Um, but I don't know that they were just like doing public neighborhood drills like that. I don't know. Maybe they were, I have no idea. Sure. Uh, I lived in Chatsworth. It was weird. Right? Yeah, <laughs> all sorts, like right. All sorts of weird kind of things. But I sometimes wonder if this is like a thin veil event when this happens and when like okay so have you did you watch what's that show we watched um that farm in wyoming 
The range, range, outer range. Have you watched this show, Outer Range? So there's like a hole in the ground. And when people go in the hole in the ground, like they're going to like another version of reality on the same location, but there's like a correlation, right? Like it's, it's sort of like, I don't, I'm not sure if it's like a different point in time or just a different iteration of the same reality, but the location is the same. So this guy, he's worried about that his property is going to be taken, right? And then he has this experience after going through this black hole in the ground where he's on his property and like the cops and Homeland Security or all this kind of shit are like attacking his property and taking his land, right? Like they're doing the raid to take his land because he won't leave it, right? Um, And so like, I wonder sometimes if a lot of the fears or concerns that we have and then the awarenesses and paranoias we have are because that thing is happening like at a different frequency on a different dimension, but in the same location is that experience like geocached there and it could be temporal or it could be dimensional, right? Mm -hmm. So it could be that that happened like at another time on that same location or that it will happen in the future. And that all those things are sort of recorded on that space mm-hmm. or just that there's like an overlapping of dimensions all law people thinking there's a ghost in the house it's really just like whoever lives there in the other dimension there's some crossover and i'm wondering if like you have a particular like your aperture is a little bit different than than the other people in your family certainly are just in general like that to me seems like the same personality characteristics as someone who notes that the way you make the podcast sound is going to affect the information, the, the believability or the, I don't know if it's believability, but the influence that the information being conveyed has on the audience. It seems like the same things that 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 same person would note those things. Yeah. I think it's weird about that experience that I don't remember the outcome of it. I just remember that little slice of it. And you think that would be something that I would remember the resolution of, you know, mm-hmm. like, Oh, my grandma got up. It was the neighbor. They were drunk. They were in the wrong house, whatever. But no, I, I mean, that's just the, the memory stops there. So I have no idea. Thin veil. I feel like, and I said this when we were telling you talking about setting up this interview and I was like, I'm not that exciting. <laughs> It's because I feel like I'm surrounded by a very thick veil. Like, although I'm very compelled and fascinated by all of these subjects, and I truly believe that they exist, I've had, I I think I've given you the compilation of everything that I've gone through as far as things like that are anomalous experiences. Um, So I don't know, maybe something about that event closed my veil or or made me a lot more cautious. Maybe that's where that seed was planted of the dynamic that freaked me out of something coming from outside that I couldn't have foreseen and just messing everything up or just causing a disturbance. I don't know. I don't know what to think about that. So I think probably the resolution was just like, whatever the blip is, whatever the crossover, if the thing that is causing the crossover in dimensions is being generated by someone or something either intentionally or knowingly, or that they're aware it happens, but even if we're not, then when it becomes clear that someone on the other side has, has noticed it, right. There could be like a correction. Like yeah. I was driving back from, uh, have you been to Los Angeles? 
Yes, recently, okay. actually, for the first and only time. Okay, so in 2011-12 period of time, I was living downtown Los Angeles, and I had been to Santa Monica that day to go to the personal trainer, the shrink, and the acupuncturist. So, like, you're in a different frame of mind. I think I went to, I think the exact order was that, personal trainer, shrink, acupuncturist. So... Um, you know, I've had some physical adjustment, some mental adjustment and some energetic adjustment. Right. Um, but the acupuncture being the last one and probably like the most sort of metaphysical or the most sort of frame of reality shifting kind of thing. And then it was like late afternoon, maybe four, sometime between three and four like that, that I was driving back to downtown. I was on the 10 headed East and, <clears throat> There was a cloud. I can't remember if it was a like a rainy day at all or not, but it was not a sunny day. It was kind of cloudy. And um, there was a cloud over downtown, like a big one, right? And I'm driving on the 10. So I'm driving straight and downtown is just sort of to the left over here. And I see this cloud and something starts moving out from behind the cloud. And it's like weird. It's like a city. It's like an astral city, but it looks like it's the kind of thing that you see on like a giant oil rig in, 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 you know, the ocean where, you know, people go and they stay out there for months and they live there. So it's like a little city, but it's got all these like weird pipes and it looked kind of like that, but in the sky. And the moment I like locked eyes on it, the cloud scooted over really fast. And like, it was like, it had slipped out from behind the cloud and it was like something was aware that I had caught it and it, it, it covered it. It cloaked it, right? Like it had slipped out of its cloak and which is fascinating when you think about what we deal with in terms of things we can, we think might be in the sky and chemtrails and cloaked cloud craft and blah, 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 blah. Um, but it's very, um, it, you know, sometimes you see videos of like these astral cities that people see in China and whatnot. And it's sort of like that, but this definitely seemed more like something that belonged in the ocean than in the sky. Interesting. Right. Which also raises the question of what is the sky. Exactly. Uh, but uh there seems so if there's like another layer of reality that understands that this is happening when we don't and have developed a sense of awareness of of like okay when they notice then like that's a mistake or sometimes maybe they want us to notice like maybe what happened is it just like it blipped in and it blipped out like you caught you caught sight of it yes and then you're questioning your grandmother about it they heard that oops yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like oh, reset shit. the frame, reset the frame, or whatever yeah, yeah. it is, uh-huh. right? And so, you know, y- you have this like in all. I mean, I've talked to a number of people who've done with drugs or like in just other weird states a person can get into, where like all of a sudden, like there's something there and then it's gone. Yeah. But enough different people who have a different set of likes, dislikes, paranoias, concerns, worries have seen similar things in similar locations or similar things when under certain kinds of similar conditions that these things have to exist. And like, I just wonder if like, I'm not saying it's one or the other, but we think of everything like in linear time. And we have all these like stories about like 1700 AD, 1800, pre-Christ, whatever. What if we took it out of temporal linear 
like consideration and moved it to like at a certain frequency at the frequency of that many Hertz or whatever. Like if we suddenly were looking at a reality, like I had a guy on the show, I'm going to put the show out this week. And he was telling me about in his Ibogaine trip, like he went back to 1904. Well, what if 1904 is a frequency? And when you're in that frequency, things look like they do uh, like in our history books, what they say about 1904. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I think there's all of this, and I don't know if it's consistently like that. Like, I think we may move through, I don't understand exactly what the universe is. So I don't know if we move or we don't move, but we seem to definitely go through cycles. And and at certain times, there seems to be more of this or less of this, or it seems to be of a certain flavor or, you know, like sometimes it seems like, well, are we talking about like time travel or timelines, or are we talking about like dimensions or like spatial anomalies or whatever it is? And I think that's related somehow to cycles and the way that the anomalies present themselves seem different based on that. So it seems like you could have been experiencing, you know, something like that. You also said you had a UFO sighting. Mm-hmm. Um, we were on the trail the other night, right when it was starting to get become nighttime. So I don't know, what was it, like 530? starting to get dark and this thing comes flying sort of towards us down from over the freeway coming a little closer towards us and then stops and then at a certain point gets up and moves away again and it was a drone right and when it was moving it had one color light when it was stationary it had another but I could see how and the reason I was able to tell it was a drone was because of, it was just light enough still, it wasn't dark and it wasn't totally light. I think it would have been more confusing if it was light outside or dark outside. Yes. I can see what size it actually was. Yeah. And I can see where it came from and that it was a drone. Mm-hmm. But if it were two hours later and it was really dark outside and then you're also dealing with all the lights from the buildings of things like that, I think I would have thought it was a UFO. Yeah, yeah. Right? Totally. And, and it was moving in that same way. Like it came down at an angle, it stopped, it hovered. And then when it was ready to go, it moved up a little bit and then went back towards where it came from. And at a certain point, it seemed to disappear, mm-hmm. right? It it, it it didn't really disappear. It just like went, there was kind of like a clouded area and it went over mm-hmm. there. But I was able to make out what happened, mm-hmm. right? And so we didn't have drones when you were little, when you yeah. had this, we had model airplanes that you could fly around probably, but I don't think those would have been so convincing. But if you're a sort of dimension peer througher type of person, it opens up a field for the people around you as well sometimes. Um, but like maybe there's like a dimension right next door where there was drones already. Like yeah. I think we need to consider all this stuff when we're talking yeah. about some of these things with with UFOs and anomalous craft. I'm not opposed to the idea that they exist in like the most fantastically space alien oriented way per se, right? But I think it's equally as likely that it could be dimensional piercing technologies that it's just like a drone from somewhere else and we don't have it yet, but either someone in our reality does or someone in the next one over, right? I think you might have you know, the eyes to see that. And then you had this scary event, right? When you, with the exorcist that you told me about. And like, that seems like the kind of event that could just shut someone down. Fuck yes. 
right? And there's other people who like don't have any of that when they're kids and then they fall on their head or they get in a car accident and then it's opened up, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so yeah. these like really traumatic events for whatever a person, what, what, what might be traumatic to you might be a lot of fun to me or vice versa, you know, yeah. like, yeah. you know, Laura experienced a pretty large earthquake when she was in Los Angeles and she's not from a place that did, but she was like, that was kind of fun. Right. <laughs> my sister would have lost her shit if she felt that. Right. So, yeah, exactly. um, but I think that's one of those things that can happen. But I think also like when we're kids, we have bigger imaginations. And I think those imaginations, um, they're doing it a disservice. Like imagination, I think is the most important thing, but also when you're little, they write things off to your imagination and make it sound small based yeah. on that, like, oh, it's just him and his imagination again. But I think things that get written off to imagination um, are really just this more sensitive to yeah. like all the things. Totally. And then for older, like lack of imagination is a serious problem with most people. Like I find, you know, like that's, um, you know, you meet these adults who like don't really have the ability to like they lost that thing from their childhood that maybe they once had, right? To just sort of like, oh, who cares if it's true or not? It's fun to talk about, so let's do it, right? With still being able to like not impose that as the truth on somebody else and say, exactly. no, this is definitely true. And if you don't believe yeah. it, then you're whatever, right? Yes. So I wonder what that is. But I also noticed you talked a lot about this fascination from the time you were a kid with metaphysical and the occult, mm-hmm. Right. Um, I used to love going to those bookstores too. There was one called the psychic eye uh, in Los Angeles that me and my sister really liked going to. Right. There was a few others that, you know, but that was the really good one. And we really liked buying like weird amulets and incense and, and, you know, weird things, (laughs) things. Right. And when we were, I was an early teenager and my sister was like nine or 10 and, um, we, we really liked that music from Twin Peaks, right? The, the soundtrack from Twin Peaks. and Angelo Badalamente. Right, love it, right? And we'd go into her bedroom and we'd light a candle and turn on the incense and listen to the Twin Peaks music. And my dad would come in and be like, are you guys having a seance in here? And I didn't even know what a seance was, but if this was a seance, I'll be like, yeah, we're having a yeah, seance. Yeah, right? sign me up. <laughs> right, and we weren't doing anything weird, but we we liked it on a level that was probably odd for little kids, right? Um, But I wonder if there's a familiarity from concurrent life or previous life, or maybe the one that we think of as next now, but they're all happening simultaneously, or like a level of familiarity with it that that comes from, right? You don't hear too many little kids saying that I like occult books or metaphysical books. That's usually something that like it takes at least into the mid to later teenage years for most kids to develop. But it sounds like you were into that from pretty little kid. Absolutely. Totally. I think if I would have had more opportunities to absorb that, I definitely would have taken advantage of it. Because once I finally got to the oasis of occult literature and knowledge, I just ate it up, devoured it. Yeah. So... Becoming obviously, especially in the midst of when I was working at the library in the in the junior high, none of my classes were talking about any of that shit. We're not taught any of that stuff. It's just relegated to the, I believe the Dewey Decibel numbers are the like the one thirties or something. 
just relegated to a little tiny sliver of the library. The science section was huge. The fucking, you know, all these other sections are gargantuan, but the little occult metaphysical section, which I thought was a much much more interesting uh was this this little tiny little patch you know like so yeah i i just i ate it up but quick, very quickly going back to what you were saying about the guy going back to 1904 and how that was maybe a frequency something that i always find when i go down that trail in my mind is that okay say there is a frequency that's 1904 say there's a frequency that's 1804 all time happening happening concurrently at the same time well, does this night that 1904 loop, does it go to a certain point and then start 1904 again? That's the part where I get confused about that. Is that something that you've pondered and what have you come up with if you have? So I I mean, I've thought about things like that. We're obviously, so we've started watching Dark based on what you, yes. you I can't remember if it was you or Hunter who asked me on the show. It was me. Uh, it was you, okay. Um, so I, the show that I said, oh yeah, I think I've watched a few episodes. It was his dark materials. It wasn't gotcha. dark. Yes. Um, so we've been, I mean, but what's being presented in that show, that that is Chatsworth, 100%, like the same kind of thing. So as you see, they're stuck in some cycle that like has some ability to ex go forward a certain amount and backward amount, but there seems to be like a, um, a definite start point and a definite end point. And then it's just like it resets and it goes yeah. again. It makes me think of a couple of things. So um, the FPV angel stuff, like they talk about a 400 year cycle, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I would be curious to know now, like, I think the idea, and again, like they have thousands of hours of stuff and I have listened to only a small fraction of it. And I've just really sort of taken it in and intuited it and then kind of, added my own sort of framework to it for myself, but they certainly opened my eyes to a bunch of stuff. I think their idea is that there's a small group of people that have learned how to ride out these turnover in the cycle and everybody else doesn't make it. I don't know. And it would be interesting to ask them if that turnover in the cycle literally just takes us back to what seems like prehistoric ages or does it actually take us back are we in some kind of closed system that just re it's kind of like when you start the video game over right yeah. like you know when you are playing video games at least now like when we were a little in the 80s when your time your game was over you was starting yeah, that's it yes. now they build on each other like now that you can you can pick up where you left off in your next session right kind of thing with some of these yeah. games but i think that like sometimes you'll do a hard reset on the system and just like blank it out and start over as if you've never played so it would be interesting to to, to know that and i think that that maybe sounds more reasonable than just like on some level than that oh we just got basically bombed back to what seemed like prehistoric ages like what if that really is it that it's just like you know, maybe the challenges or maybe whoever created such such system or whatever created such, such system is fascinated to watch like how far the people can get this time around, just like playing the game. How many, exactly. how many, how far can I get on this game kind of thing? I think that's possible. I think the other thing that it's weird, like a bunch of stuff has opened up for me informationally in the last couple of weeks. And I don't know 
if reality is different or I'm different or what's happening, but I have, my attention has been turned to this idea of something called magnetic mirror fusion as a way of creating and harnessing energy. And it seems like in order to do it, let me see if I have the grid, the grid up. Cause what you're talking about, like, I didn't think we would talk about this today, but what you are talking about makes me think there was like one picture of it that like, see if I can find the pics. There was like one picture of what it looked like. Let me just type this in magnetic mirror fusion that started to have me I cannot find a single like article in which magnetic mirror fusion and particle accelerators are talked about together. Okay. What did so, you hear about magnetic mirror fusion? Um, well, this got into like a weird memory I had of a family member, right? Cause there is a family member through marriage who is a famous physicist who I was always told, and this was like something I was opposed to, was a fission scientist working on fission. I remember clearly having an argument with my cousin about fission versus fusion, right? And her father was the famous physicist and there's not, you know, there's not cold fusion. Fission is the way, whatever kind of thing, right? But, mm -hmm. and when he passed away, he's a very famous physicist. He passed away a couple of years ago. I remember reading the article in the newspaper and talked about, well, he, Dick Post, Livermore Laboratory, nuclear fission, and da, 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 da. There's no record. I Now it all says fusion, magnetic mirror fusion, maglev trains, all of this stuff that I've never heard of before. And as a person who's been interested in the topic of cold fusion for as many years as I have, that I've never heard about yin-yang mirror fusion and magnetic mirror fusion. But this is, there was one one graph in particular, this one, right? See this? Yeah, yeah. It's called tandem mirrors. Mm -hmm. And this is a way that they had figured out how to create plasma fields and like trap them. So I would imagine that that field has its own sort of like state temporal reality right? You can see I, I'm not a scientist or a physicist, so I may be talking out of my ass, but I'm just speaking out of intuition, right? This symbol right here is the in, is the basically the negative space. It is a, a, a quatrefoil or a Templar's cross. Gotcha. Right? Yes. I think Templars are time traveler. I think like they know how to order themselves in time or they know how to order time around themselves. They're the, the, te the or order temple orientalis, I think it's people who are able to orient and order themselves in time, order time or orient themselves in it or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Have these two loops, right? And it, it looks kind of, if you look at some of these pictures, this one, it doesn't look that different than a linear particle accelerator, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So yeah. I can't find one mention of particle accelerator and magnetic mirror fusion or tandem mirror fusion within the same paper or article. So like, I, I don't know if they're the same thing, if they're different things, if like, I, I, I just find that weird because I imagine that they have particle accelerators and tandem mirror fusion generators at the same locations, but why is there no discussion? Like they look, this looks like a, this looks like a particle accelerator. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like why can't I find the two things talked about together? That's weird. Right. It's like the, the double identity. You don't see them in the same room at the same time. But let, let's just say for the sake of discussion that this, this, whatever this is, this plasma thing, this is plasma in the middle, 
And this is the end mirrors that the space in between the two mirrors is 1984 1904. So when you arrive in 1904 on your Ibogaine time travel experience, you might start at the beginning or you might hear at the middle, but at a certain point you reach the end. Does that then become 1905? Like do you walk through the mirror and it becomes 1905 or does it like collapse back to the beginning? Like, is it just over? And then 1905 is a completely separate Mm-hmm. magnetic tandem mirror with plasma yeah. between I, I i'm i'm literally just blowing shit out my ass right yeah, now yeah. i don't know right but i think these are things to consider i mean we don't uh, we from what I, I i'm very new into this i've just discovered this this week right but it answers a lot of questions i've had as far as the interdimensional architecture and the mirrored buildings reflecting off of each other and why yeah. it, it it literally looks in this city like some of the buildings are built to ensure that they will not reflect in any other buildings. Now, if plasma is generated between two things that are reflecting each other and you want to not participate in that or you want to control your own, what if these buildings are literally the power for them is being provided by plasma fields between, like then is the two buildings that are doing that, are they owned by the same people? So they're creating their own temporal, like what the fuck, right? Like it opens up a lot of things. And I could be wrong about all of this, but I think there are reasonable questions. But this sure. this looks just like a particle accelerator. And now yeah. it's called the magnetic mirror machine. Now, remember what, what was one of the very first uh, Mandela effects? Uh, the Berenstain Bears? And, but what, what was the one right after that? Oh, shit. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Oh, yeah, the Snow White one. Right. So we, but I don't know about you, but where I come from, it was mirror, mirror on the wall. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently now it's magic mirror on the wall. I know exactly. And it would be, I would be really interested to know if like that was about the same time that like the program shifted from like a fission to a magnetic mirror fusion kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it, you'll always see signatures like this in the reality. Right. But what you said Right. That, I think that's a really interesting question. Right. Because it seems about the, about the about the loop. Right. Are these just are we right now in the one like just the longest haul of a magnetic mirror fusion kind of pipeline or whatever? I don't even know what the right words are to say. Right. Or is it like if once something passes, it's preserved in this weird like temporal memorial that is something like that, that maybe some of these buildings or or frequencies grant access to, or I have no idea. But that's what I thought about when you said that about 1904. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and are there different ones or are they all yeah. the same? Exactly. Is 1904 different in Lawrence, Kansas than it is in Austin, Texas? Exactly. If I were to hit that, right? Like it's it's really... That's a really interesting question. I like it. <laughs> I always, it's something I was thinking about too when I knew that we were going to talk tonight um, was about retro causality and time and how some people really focus on, let's just use an example of, uh, oh, Tavistock and the Beatles and mm-hmm. how the Beatles were a psyop set in motion by Tavistock, so on and so forth. And how really I myself, by listening to the music, I don't feel like 
it's psyop music to me. It doesn't it, it doesn't feel like there's something sinister behind it. I could be totally wrong, acting out of naivety. I haven't gone into it that much to tell you the truth, but it makes me wonder when groups of people, which is very easily easily done these days with the with the internet and groups being started and a lots of attention being focused on different things that have happened in our past, if we can't help but influence those things. Like maybe in the beginning, there wasn't a Tavistock influence with the Beatles, but because of some dots that were connected and then all the tension that got put on that dot connecting and then other dots being connected to that, like somehow we've set some alternate version of that in motion uh, that wasn't there previously. I don't know. I mean, what is- All right, I love this. Let's let's press the pause button right here and move over to the supporters hour. And I would love- Sure. I would love to, this is amazing. I would love to dig into this with you. All right, so we're going to move over into the patrons hour. You can go to patreon.com forward slash offplanetmedia, emilymoyer.locals.com or rockfin.com forward slash emilymoyer to find our fascinating, <laughs> fascinating uh, discussion on Tavistock retro causality and what the fuck are the Beatles really. But Chris, <laughs> before we do, let people know where they can find your really awesome podcast. Well, thank you. Um, everything can be found really at the pod, uh, the meltpodcast.net. You can find the Patreon channel. You can find Telegram. All the links that you need to know are there. So we have a YouTube channel. YouTube, I would guess, slash the Melt Podcast. I actually don't know that, but you can get to that. You from just the- find the Melt Podcast. <laughs> you just search yeah. the Melt Podcast. Yeah. Exactly, yes. And and I, I'm hoping sometime uh, early in the new year, Hunter will be joining me here as well. So there will be more melting going on. And uh, I always like the idea of uh, the mind melt or the mind <laughs> meld, right? And so it's fun to do it with you guys. We're going to move over to the other side. We'll see you over there. All right. Okay.